Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Discovering God's Future for Your Church. This turnkey video toolkit helps your congregation discern and implement God's vision for your church's next faithful steps. Learn more and watch an introductory video at churchleadership.com slash vision. How can church leaders approach innovation in ways that are consistent with their faith? In this episode, Kenda Creasy Dean says it starts by focusing on people and not problems and by seeking to participate in God's new thing rather than trying to get God to participate in ours. Welcome to Leading Ideas Talks, a podcast featuring thought leaders and innovative practitioners. I am Douglas Poe, the director of the Lewis Center and your host for this talk. Joining me is Reverend Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean, the Mary D. Senate Professor of Youth, Church, and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary, She is the author of a new book, Innovating for Love. Our focus for this podcast is social innovation. Kenda, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you and really excited about your new book. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. I want to start off um, because you really start off in the book strong and you really, um, I think, surprise many people because you push us to rethink Simon Sinek's starting with why. Can you share more about your reasoning for moving away from his logic of why as the starting point? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think it's partly because um, when we start with why, we start with problems as opposed to with people, number one. But the big thing is, you know, for Christian social innovation, and I don't want to I don't want to say starting with why is terrible. It's just not the place Christians start, right? Christians start with who? With people. But also, I mean, the first who is the, you know, God of Jesus Christ, but also the people that God has placed on our path. And, you know, it's interesting that with design thinking and some of the other um, emphases that are coming out of the design world that churches have begun to really pay attention to, all of those start with empathy with the person, you know, mm-hmm. you, you don't, the point is not to try to pr- pretend that we understand a problem from the outside. We, we want to understand the people and what their needs are and what, the, how they are experiencing particular problems. In fact, this is a, this, I've become more aware of this actually since the book came out, but I've become increasingly familiar with equity-based design, which takes it to a different level. Even As much as we even empathize with people, as much as we listen to them, that's a different kind of uh, process than if we actually design with them or do ministry collaboratively rather than helping people all the time. Well, you make a really good point. It is something I'm sure you talk about in your class also. There's a really big difference of doing things for people, which the church has really gotten really good at doing things for people, even in ministry is sort of like, you know, let's go out and do this for the community or for those individuals who need help. Instead of thinking about how do we do things with people, which takes a lot more work. Um, 
a much slower process. Uh, and a lot of what I think you're arguing and we're going to unpack during this podcast, but I think you're absolutely right. Doing things with people requires a different way of thinking. Yeah. And I, I think I'm having to train myself to use different language even and talk about, you know, instead of helping and being the, the people who kind of have the solutions, right, um, to working with partners in ministry to, you know, create the kinds of solutions that actually bless the people in the ways that they want to be blessed instead of that I think they ought to be blessed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I then want to pick up. Um, and you talked about Christian and particularly Christian social innovation. But what is interesting is you actually don't like the word innovation. Uh, uh, and you comment sure. on that in the book. So let's start off with why you don't like the word innovation. But then I want to spin that into then the uniqueness of why you are really particular about talking about Christian social innovation. Yeah, well, I, I mean, also, we're so in love with it right now. And so we use uh -huh. it for everything. And it doesn't really mean anything anymore. I think um, it's, it's kind of like the word missional after you got used to using it for every, everything and everybody and their brother, it, um, it kind of lost its focus. And I think that's happening with innovation as well. Um, I, yeah, I, I do think that if we are, first of all, I should say, I, I think about innovation pretty broadly. Um, there are, you can slice and dice it academically if you want to. I frankly think that's kind of a waste of time. But I think that the idea is that um, God is doing something new is kind of the foundation for it. And it kind of puts a different spin on it, though, if God's doing the new thing instead of us. Nothing we're going to do is going to compare to what the new things that God has done. So what does that mean our role is in it? And so I think Christian, uh, Christian social innovation is also a really clunky term. I'm shopping for new language. If anybody's got a good idea, I'm listening. Um, the fact that we are doing this as an act of faith is the reason Christian is important. The fact that we're participating in God's innovation rather than trying to get God to participate in ours. And social innovation is important because we're not just looking at, first of all, newness for newness's sake. And we're not just looking at um, product innovation. We're not just looking at cooler churches. We're looking at different ways of living together socially, different ways of being communities. And it's, it's interesting how many conversations about innovation take the social right out of it. But for, for churches in particular, I think that is really the sweet spot. It's not, it's not that innovation can't be used in other ways in faith, faithfully, right? Um, monks invented champagne. We're glad for that. But the, um, what monks also did in the Middle Ages was reinvent ways to govern communities and reinvent ways to do agriculture, which is credited with preventing famine. They created new ways that made living together qualitatively better. And I think that's more the kind of innovation that is ministry-based. So just to sort of stay on this track, then social for you has to do with... Um, 
community and the way that we actually are called to be the church, to participate in the new thing God is doing is the way that you're using social. Because I think, again, social is one of those terms people hear and they start getting nervous, um, but you're, you're really using it in a very particular way in this case. Am I correct? Yeah, I do think it has to do with the quality of community and, and with the, um, I talk a little bit about the upside down nature of agape, right? So it's a, the way Christians think about community turns a lot of so, our, our public social norms inside out, right? Particularly ones that have to do with power. And um, that is, that's the nature of love. Love does that. Um, it gives it, it it invites people to the party that wouldn't normally be there. It make gives makes the last first and the you know the blind see and the dead live again. So it's a pretty it's a pretty different way of being a community than what most people experience on an average Tuesday. And it also sort of um, pushes us to think because we have unfortunately continues this sort of um, individualism within our Christianity. Right. And, and of course, in some ways you're saying, no, Christianity is really about community and, and that it's not just this sort of me and Jesus, but we really have to think about how are we connected to community and what that means. I mean, is that a fair statement? Yeah, specifically, if, I think I would say, first, we have to be connected with God and through yeah. God, we become, I mean, that opens up kind of community that we can be. Suddenly we are in communion with all of God's children and not just with the people who we know and like. So it does have a, it's a, it's not just being in community, it's being in a particular kind of community, right? Yeah. Um, one that actually is the body of Christ, that embodies Christ's love. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to CSI or Christian Social Innovation, then, um, <laughs> CSI, what, I never thought of that. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. So you can, you can do that, CSI. Uh, then coming back to that, you talk about humility. Well, love and humility. Um, these are, and you've talked a little bit about love and um, when we were sort of unpacking what you meant by this, but humility is also key. And I think in some ways, um, just as tricky as the love piece. Can you say a little bit mm. more? And, and, and I'm curious of you're thinking about how do we really live into that? It's sort of, I mean, as I was reading it, I mean, I agree with you, but I think, I mean, humility is one of those things that when you think about it, you sort of almost lost it already because you're, you, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, do you know what I mean? I do. Um, I guess I think humility might be a lost art for most of us, particularly All Americans, right. but um I do think it's really one of the signature qualities of Christian social innovation. If you're going to be a Christian involved in trying to do new things, as, as long as we are willing to be part of God's innovation, it, what we're trying to do is get us out of the middle of things and put what God's new thing is in the middle, right? We become um, collaborators with that rather than I think what we usually do is we've got a great idea. Now let's see if we can reel God into it, right? right. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is flip that around. Um, and 
you know, it takes a little, a little bit of humility to say, yeah, first of all, this isn't really my great idea. I'm participating in something that's bigger than me. Secondly, um, you know, I might suck at this. This might be, this might be a huge, a huge gamble on my part that could fail. Um, and all of those things being able to, are, are ways of just acknowledging we're not the center of the universe. And I think that's really liberating, to be honest. You know, um, if it's not all on us and if it's not, you know, we're not just running on our steam. I mean, we've just been through a pandemic and a lot of the stuff that we experienced as quote unquote innovative, really, it was more adaptation of what we were already doing. But nonetheless, it was new for us and we're exhausted. And a lot of that's because it's, we're, that those were our ideas. We were running on our steam to the extent that we can be part of what God is already up to. It allows for God, first of all, the Holy Spirit's energy is kind of filling our sails on that. But also we're part of a, something that's way bigger than just we are. We're not solely responsible for it. We have a part to play. So there are two things I sort of want to unpack with this. The first is how do we, and this is the part that I struggle with, because I agree with you, but how do we live into not getting caught up in our own thing? Because, I mean, you you know what we do at churches. I mean, we get into a situation and we sit around in a committee and we try to figure out how do we resolve this thing? And we come yeah. up with, like, this is a great idea that we have. So it's not necessarily what God is doing that we're following. We're pursuing right. our own sort of thing to fix whatever the problem happens to be at that time. So how do you take a step back to say, we're really going to try to follow where God is leading us? Well, of course, that, that's the million dollar question. We're not going to get this right. <laughs> um, we're right, going to right, right. do our best. I, but I, the, the most concrete thing I think we can do is spend a lot more time listening and a lot less time spouting answers. Hmm. And I know that that sounds so basic, but the truth is, you know, we all, it's a human thing. It's not just a church thing. We, we all are apt to act on our own impulses before we're going to listen to um, the context, to the actual situation. I mean, innovators have a phrase, you should fall in love with the problem, not the solution. But it's very easy to fall in love with the solution. If we just did this, everything would be great. But that means we have lost sight of really trying to understand the the way people experience hardship. And I, you know, the last couple of years is a is a case in point, right? Where um, one of the things that Black Lives Matter has done for us is force us to stop and say, as a culture, wait a second, there is a there is a way of experiencing our society that has been really painful for a group of people. It is time for us to shut up and listen and see how they're experiencing this and what we can learn from that. Because even people who want to, you know, be allies in that, um, you know, we're quick to jump to solutions before we really understood the person who's in pain. Um, you know, Simone Weil has this great line that she just thinks helps us <laughs> helps us understand one another, but it would be a really good line for most of us to lead with. And she's like, 
to ask someone, you know, what are you going through? You know, good or bad, but just what are you going through? What you're basically saying is, what is what is life like for you right now? And that's that's a non-biasing way to say, tell me what it feels like to be you right now, you know. Um, so the most concrete thing, I think, is to slow it down and listen. Let me just add one other thing. Um, I've been persuaded by some of the, the work that Andy Root has done on this, but the we have this association with innovation that it makes things go stronger, faster, leaner, quicker. I want to challenge that with Christian social innovation. A lot of times, the things that matter most to us slow us down, stop us in our tracks. We don't necessarily go faster. We don't necessarily go bigger, you know? So for example, you know, anybody with kids knows that the, the slowest thing in the world is a walk with a child, right? Because they are noticing all of these things down close to the ground that we have got. And my daughter, it was like impossible to take a walk with when she was little because every flower, every berry, every bug, but that, that's the kind of noticing that is actually qualitatively new in our culture, right? It's not new to God, but it's new to us. And, you know, if creation is God's good thing, it, it would be good for us to slow down and notice it. Anyway, that's a just a pedestrian example of that. But I think that's another way Christian social innovation can stand apart from our traditional understandings of it. Yeah. That was helpful. Thank you. I appreciate that. And a great example, uh, you know, especially for those of us who have children, we understand exactly <laughs> what you're saying. L let me um, stick with this, but come at it from a very different angle where uh, um, I'm going to push against you a little bit. And I want to get your impression of this. You, you talk about at one point, um, and I forget the page number, but you say that you believe most congregations want to innovate. Um, you know as well as I do, the reality of congregations really liking the status quo. So I'm really curious of what you mean by this statement yeah. that most congregations want to innovate. Okay, so that's really fair. Um, I think maybe I should have said they really want to want to innovate. Okay, um, I could go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have, maybe I should have said it that way. Because I think most people have a hunch that there's another way to do things. They yeah, just don't okay. have an imagination for what that is. Uh -huh. And they're not quality. I mean, they're, they're not against new things. They're against change. <laughs> that, that is absolutely correct. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, if, if somehow that change feels a little less threatening, maybe, um, it wouldn't be quite so, so odd. But most people, I don't think would say that trying something different is a bad idea but then when it gets to changing things that's when it gets nerve-wracking right yeah yeah that makes sense i'm with you okay that that helps me out a lot <laughs> but i could have said that better <laughs> yeah we all could do those things but i was like i just said all right i want to see what she means by this <laughs> I now want to sort of dig in deep to one of your examples. You have many, one of the things I really appreciate about the book is there are some wonderful examples for people to, to read uh, case studies. 
um, that relate to the point you're making. Um, one of them has to do with Pastor Eric at uh, St. Bart. Yeah. Um, I'll let you sort of set it up and just share a little bit about the story. Um, but the question I have related to it is, I sort of picture him being the driving force behind what happens. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the congregation also participated in sort of following God in this work. Because yeah. um, I, I think the danger is, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm genuinely asking this, is that, you know, many pastors sort of get stuck of where they're out pursuing this, but the people are like, you go do that, pastor. That's great. Yeah, yeah. We're going to stay yeah. back here and do our thing. You, you know, you go do, you go do you now. So I'm just wondering, uh, I mean, I'll let you share a little bit about the story, but uh, yeah. you know, if, if you have any insight, like, was this really an effort by the congregation and how he then was able to build that momentum to do so? Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great setup for that, Doug. The, so the story is, um, Eric, um, Reverend Eric Kusman is a Lutheran pastor. He was a former student of mine, um, but I can't take credit for him. He was he had a vision for ministry coming in that he is now living out. Anyway, he is at a little or was at a little tiny church in Trenton where, you know, it was like a lot of little tiny churches. They had 20 or 30 faithful members. They were in the middle of a struggling community. The church itself was struggling. He, he lost sleep over whether he was going to make payroll every week, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, a pandemic hits and he realizes, well, they're in a pretty food insecure area. So he begins by getting some um, other churches on board to kind of help help support the food pantry, which is getting a lot of extra traffic. Our church, I also go to a little tiny church and our church was one of the churches that helped, helped him out basically. So what happened with Eric was with each step he took to get to know his community better, it led to deeper and deeper change within his own congregation. I think at first it was just Eric, but, and maybe it's easier with a small congregation, pretty quickly, lots of other people got involved. So for example, so first he was like, let's, let's build up the food pantry. That's what we should do. Well, then school, all the schools shut down. And one of the things that happens in a food insecure neighborhood is school lunches are a big part. They, they help families out quite a bit. Well, now these families had to scrounge and put together school lunches. So then he created a bag lunch program and churches contributed bag lunches, blah, blah, blah. And as he saw, he, he got to know people as they came in to get these bag lunches. And then he realized that they were taking, a, some of them were taking like eight or nine lunches. And he was like, what's that about? So again, he doesn't assume he goes and talks to the people. And he, what he finds out is, well, the internet situation is so bad in this part of Trenton that kids were having their online school in whatever house in the neighborhood had the best signal. And so they would all be together, hence eight or nine lunches. Well, then Eric's like, well, shoot, maybe we should help get a better internet signal. This goes through several iterations, right? And with each iteration, a couple things happen. His congregation was very involved in helping to distribute these, these meals. They had a, a kind of a renewed sense of purpose, actually, out of it. Yes, it, was, it started because the pastor listened. But very quickly, it was something that was shared. But the interesting thing was, 
it became shared by people outside of the congregation too. Because after, after a little while, they, Eric was going to bat for these people and they were like, well, that's my pastor. That's my church. Now understand, they'd never been to this church. Everything was shut down. They didn't even speak English, a lot of them. But they were like, those Christians in that little community, they're on my team. They're advocating for me. They're helping us get through this terrible time. That's my church. And true to form, when the church started to open back up again, um, and the weather got good, and they even they, they became part of the worshiping community. Not everybody, but a significant number. So it has to start somewhere, but it doesn't it, it doesn't take a lot for people. People want a purpose. They want their churches to matter, to make a difference. And when that happens, I think it does it does get contagious. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I think that's helpful because it's sort of gives a concrete example of everything you said prior to how Christian social innovation really can work. Um, it can start with one person mm-hmm. uh, really pursuing God's calling, mm-hmm. but then others sort of get involved and it just keeps sort of morphing into something new. So I, I appreciate that. That's powerful. Great, great example. Well, I, let me just say one other thing about that particular pastor. I mean, he, from the very beginning, notice he recognized that he's got 20 or 30 people in Trenton. So he reaches out to other congregations, other communities. This ministry became like our church thinks of it as our ministry too. You know, it became something that was shared. And I say that because I really believe the future of ministry is partnership yeah, and collaboration and doing things with people who both are and are beyond church communities. And that in itself is an ecclesial innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Let me uh, move to one of my favorite lines in the book. And it's steward abundance and do not manage scarcity. How can we take steps towards doing this? Most of us sort of uh, steward yeah. <laughs> uh, scarcity and not think about stewarding abundance. So. Um, how do we help people to do it? I mean, and and obviously, uh, Reverend Eric actually did your example. He does that, even though the church obviously did not have a lot of resources, and they could have just simply said, we can't do this, but that's mm-hmm. not the way he thought about it. Right. Um, so, I mean, what is it you think in his makeup or the way he thought about this that really helped him to steward abundance? Yeah, that's a great question. I think... The first part is recognizing that we that we are called to, you know, this life of abundance, right? And that actually we are situated within abundance even when we have a scarcity of certain resources. So there are lots of examples of churches that have done this where they've been able to identify the assets of their communities that go beyond um, financial assets. The, the one that's most, most well-known maybe in Methodist circles is St. Luke's in Indianapolis. And, you know, where they began to, to not just catalog who was coming into their church, but what their gifts were, you know, and how they were, they would then call upon them to serve in various ways that were related to those gifts. So they had a, not just a bank of food or a bank of, um, services, but they had a bank of gifts. 
So that's one way of recognizing that we're situated in abundance. Um, so I guess I think a lot of it is mindset, you know, uh-huh. um, and recognizing that everyone brings assets to the table and the first rather than look, our first instinct, right, is because we have bills to pay and so on. The most measurable thing we have usually measures our scarcity. Yes. And that's that's cash, right? Or time. Yeah. Either one of those. But the truth is what we have most of are people. Mm. They're either people in our pews or people in our neighborhoods. But, you know, we have people and we're called to be in ministry with the people God's put on our path. And those people have gifts. And sometimes they know it and sometimes they don't. Um, it, it's fascinating to me. One of the things that happened in my own congregation was getting involved in um, Christian social entrepreneurship with, through a food truck allowed people who really for 70 years thought to do ministry, you had to be on a church committee. They did not know that the gifts that they used every day in their in their jobs, in their careers, that they careers that they often loved, they did not know God could use those for the kingdom of God. They thought they put those aside, served on a church committee for a couple of hours, and that's how they did ministry. And when we wound up with a food truck, a bunch of people, a bunch of young people did not, we did not know what we were doing. I'm not one of the young people, but I didn't know what I was doing either. But Al turned out to be um, kind of on the side. He used to work for Hewlett Packard. He helped invent the inkjet printer. And I, I mean, here was this guy most people knew because he had a part-time job at True Value. Nobody knew his career background. And he became a business consultant for us in the way he had been throughout his career. And it was transformative for him and for us. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate the the people because I think you're right that we think small and we don't think about the gifts of the people and how we can actually call on them to help us to do the work that God is calling us to do. Um, as we get ready to bring this to a close, I really appreciate this conversation today. It's been great. And again, just a wonderful book. I hope all our readers will get it because I think it will make a difference in their ministries. Um, I want to move towards the end where you talk about the importance of not looking for the next big thing, but trying little experiments. I think yeah. that is just the best wisdom um, that can be given. Can you share a little bit about how congregations can get started trying these little experiments? I think that the hard thing for congregations is taking that very first step. It's sort of like going back to children, when someone's starting to walk, that, that first step is feels like the toughest one to make. So how do you take that very first step? Um, I think that we have a tendency to want to, especially because churches don't have a lot of financial resources. If, we're, if it's going to cost any money, we want all of the I's dotted and T's crossed before we take any step at all. And there is absolutely zero research or examples of anything that has ever succeeded that has started that way. And we, you start with small wins, right? 
And so the catch is not how do we have, we might have this great idea or this big business um, vision or some dream for our community. That's, which is good. It's good to have those dreams. But you start with a thimble full, not with a gallon bucket, you know? What is the first thimble full that we can sort of test drive out? How can we try this, try this thing out? So I told you about the food truck example at our congregation. We didn't start, we should have started smaller than a food truck in retrospect. So, but at least the first thing we did was not go buy a food truck and then figure it out. We had, there was a series of months where Sundays after church, we would test menu items. You know, mm. we would, we would get feedback on things like, you know, here's a logo, you know, does this, does this con- feel consistent with the mission of this church? That kind of stuff. Sort of gathering pieces along the way until um, a grant became available that allowed for the purchase of a food truck and, um, or a truck that we turned into a food truck. And so, you know, it's just little things that one step at a time where you can sort of try them out and find out what bombs and what doesn't. Um, some things have more traction than you think they're going to. Um, others that you think are going to be home runs just fall flat. That's true for every, every substantial project that, you know, I think is, that's true in churches and not churches too. Um, one small step. I think we're afraid to do that because what if it fails? I mean, there's a very good likelihood that a lot of, a lot will fail. Then that money will have been wasted. Maybe, but you'll have wasted $10 instead of $10,000, which is a far better use of your resources. Um, so we, we want to th- dream big and start small. Kenda, thank you. This has been wonderful. I appreciate it. And again, I'm hoping that individuals will really buy the book. It will really help them in the work they're doing. Well, thank you. It's really fun to be here. And um, yeah, blessings on the podcast. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.